Well, tonight we are beginning our series in the book of Galatians, and um, so we are going to be looking at, uh, well, we'll be considering the entire book. I'm going to read two select passages from Galatians that really get to uh, kind of the, the big deal of what's going on in the letter. And so our first passage that we'll read in the book of Galatians is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. You can find this on page 972 in the Pew Bible. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Uh, Then we move forward to chapter 2 to read our second passage. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Martin Luther had this to say about the book of Galatians. He said, the epistle to the Galatians is my own epistle to which I am betrothed. It is my Katie Von Bora, which is the name of his wife. So he was very excited to marry when he wasn't a priest anymore. So, um, but what is it about this letter? Because this was not the passage that he read that was gave him that brought him to uh, uh, to faith, that brought him to his conversion. Uh, that was in Romans. And so, what is it about this letter that brings forth such praise from that great reformer of the church? Uh, and and the, the, the letter is um, considered widely. It's, it, it's funny, even, even liberal scholars agree that the, the, this guy named the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Right? It's across the board. <laughs> uh, this is one of the few times that you, there's agreement everywhere. Paul wrote this. Okay, let's just, you know, We can say Paul wrote this. Um, but this is considered to be Paul's earliest letter. The first one he wrote that we have. And, uh, and, and he was, it was written to the churches in, in the southern part of Galatia. And it's, I was chuckling because I saw that I, I put slide. 
So this. <laughs> so if you'll direct your attention to the slide, I slavishly prepared this week because I forgot we were here apparently. Um, so uh, uh, you'll notice there's a map. So, but no, if if, is, if you know the territory of kind of Israel's right here, then then you have the Mediterranean Sea over here, then Galatia's up here. Okay, and so Galatia, and so kind of southern Galatia, and um, and so he traveled up there. Just come next week, I'll have so. Um, but you, you, in his first missionary journey, that's where that's part of uh, where he went with Southern Galatia, and v- visiting towns of Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. That's why if you see if you're reading a map or you see in the Book of Acts, you read it, it says Antioch Pisidia. Antioch Pisidia is in Southern Galatia, because remember Antioch is a northern town in Samaria where uh, where he the church that had sent Paul out. And that was over in that in that in that Jewish area, uh, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Antioch Pisidia, which is over here. So, um, uh, so, uh, so he visited these churches. He is, he planted these churches. Went in, preached the gospel, gathered the people, and and planted these churches. And then um, he went back. And when he got back, he found out very quickly. That there were some uh, that because in these communities there was a Jewish presence, so there were people who became professing Christians out of the Jewish community. But he found out that there were some men that were going to these churches, and they were causing some serious problems in these Galatian churches. Paul uh, then dispatches a letter that clarifies the issue, the problem that's going on. He provides the answer. And, and, all, and then he also uh, exhorts the church to live in light of the gospel. And we're looking at all three of those aspects tonight. And so we're going to walk through kind of the structure of the book of Galatians, uh, as, as is our habit. We're going to walk through that and kind of get in our mind a picture of this letter, a picture of this book. So, so we'll begin first with the problems in Galatia. Uh, in, and this covers basically what, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 14. There's an outline in the back of your bulletin. And so in the opening section of the letter, we find Paul has a serious beef with the Galatians. And we find out that it, they apparently have a problem with him. Uh, and so for, we'll begin with Paul's problem with the Galatians, which is in part the passage that we read. It's uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we have right there in chapter 1. Now Paul, for him, uh, uh, he wrote over half of the New Testament books. Right? Uh, so, uh, so, half, uh, so he wrote uh, most of the New Testament. And, uh, and so, uh, and, and that's what actually makes this letter stand out. Because we're very familiar with Paul's letters. And so what's, what stands out about Paul's letter here is actually not what's in it, but what is missing. And that is after his greeting, his standard greeting, normally he would give a, a, a paragraph of thanksgiving for their faith. Um, he even did it for the Corinthians. Like if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know there's a mess of stuff going on in church. He even did it for them, not for the Galatians. No thanksgiving for you, Galatians. I'm just, he comes in and just starts laying the lumber. All right. And so Paul skips that, jumps right in, and, and, and he says, you are abandoning not only the gospel, but Christ. You're abandoning him in what you're doing. Now that'll get your attention. Imagine the church gathering together. Oh, a letter from Paul. Let's all read it together. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, this is not what we were expecting. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it's kinda, uh, it's so, 
Um, now, I would, I would actually argue that the people of the church probably didn't realize that they were accepting a different gospel. I doubt they said, eh, we don't like Paul's gospel, we like this gospel over here. Right? Something had happened. There was teaching that got in that was corrupting the gospel that they were accepting. But it was such that Paul wrote them in strenuous language, uh, such strenuous language, it came at them so hard. And because they probably thought these men who had come into the church after Paul had left, that were teaching about the law and obedience to the law, uh, of the Jewish law, were actually being helpful. They were explaining, oh, this is what you've got to do. This is how you do it. Right? This is what God wants. Now, this group of men came to be known as the Judaizers. Uh, because of their strict adherence to Jewish customs and law and their getting others to do it with them. But who were the Judaizers specifically and, and what were they teaching? Well, uh, Guy Waters, who actually preached at our church before, he's one of my professors in seminary, he, he, um, he wrote on this and he had a very helpful summary of, of the Judaizers. And essentially they are professing Jewish Christians. They are. They're, they're, they're people who are part of Christian churches that are Jewish uh, and who profess faith in Christ. They profess to be believers. Um, uh, what, uh, and what really concerned Paul was that they taught that there can be no justification without circumcision. Now, that confuses modern audiences because um, still many males are circumcised as just kind of a standard habit of, of society um, in, and when they're born. And so, so for a lot of people, uh, for most Americans, the, a concept of circumcision is actually not a religious thing. <laughs> so and so, uh, so they go circumcision. What's the big deal about circumcision? Well, circumcision itself was not even the issue for Paul. He doesn't care. Uh, and so it's, he made that clear before when he went and he had Timothy circumcised, not because it was anything, but just because he didn't want to cause offense to the Jewish people they were talking to. So he said, "Hey, you're going to do it," and that's quite a commitment to make for Timothy. But um, but uh, but that's what that, you know. That's what it did. It wasn't anything. Uh, really, it wasn't here nor there for Paul anymore. Because, but circumcision, as it's being talked about here, as being applied here, it's used um, as a committal of one's life to keeping the Mosaic law of the Old Covenant, particularly in, as a means to obtaining justification in the sight of God. This is how you were made right in God's sight. To support their arguments, they apparently appealed to the Old Testament. To Abraham and the covenant that God made with him. And we can infer that because in the bulk of Paul's letter, he focuses on Abraham, the covenants, the promises, the role of the law, like all these things. And so presumably he is correcting the arguments that were being made in the, in the Galatian churches. So, uh, and finally, in, in order to improve their own credibility, the Judaizers apparently were tearing Paul down claiming that Paul's apostleship was just from, uh, you know, we talk about the, the men over in Washington making, you know, those kind of those guys over in D.C., you know, kind of thing, making decisions and stuff like that. It's kind of like, well, it's just some guys over in Jerusalem. That's what his apostleship is. They're just sending this guy over here. He's not from God. He's coming from men. And now Paul, in his response, um, it, he, he is not a legalist. And Paul is not a heresy hunter. He didn't go around trying to find every, everybody that's wrong about something and call them names and make them feel bad about it. Again, circumcision to him, to, in, it, to him in, as, as a matter in and of itself was, well, he was quite indifferent. 
Um, but we, and, we have, and for evidence of this, we have to go, go over to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is amazing because in Philippians, uh, in chapter 1, we find out that there are people who are preaching the gospel because they hate Paul and they want to get him in trouble. And so they thought if they preach the gospel and make trouble, that'll cause Paul to get in more trouble. And what did Paul say there? Have him keep going. More. Yeah, do it. I rejoice all the more. He doesn't get mad at all. He celebrates. He rejoices. Why? Because they were preaching the gospel. They were unwitting agents of heaven. Doing heaven's work. And so what what has happened in Galatia is that the gospel has become corrupted. And we know that there are false gospels of aplenty today. There is even the error of the very opposite of legalism, which we would call antinomianism or lawlessness. This is the idea of the people who imbibe the teaching that any obedience or any calls to obedience to God's commands as Christians is legalism. And there are people who speak that way and just say, well, you know, and it's like, well, no, it's that, that's not what it is. There are other modern corruptions of the gospel. You have the prosperity gospel, of course. You also have lesser known, perhaps, the, uh, what's called the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision. Um, now, I, I highlight those last two because we're not going to get into the weeds on those. But, but each of those ends up taking the Bible and twisting it around. The prosperity gospel, as Michael Horton has written about, is, is legalism with a smile. Right? You get Mr. Mr. Man out there in Houston with his mansions and yachts, and he's smiling at you and tell you how wonderful you are. And stuff. Well, why don't you have the life you want? Because you don't believe enough. Why don't you have the life enough? Because you're not confident enough. Because you're not, you don't have enough faith. He's just smiling at you while you give him more money. And that's why he's smiling, right? Because he's getting the money that's coming in, right? I saw him, sell, he was celebrating, weeping with tears the other day at, at, on stage because uh, they had just paid off a $100 million loan. <laughs> it's like, I was like, that is something you would cry about on stage, right? Is, is paying off a $100 million loan. So we finally paid off the yacht, you know? Like, we finally paid off the Gulf Stream. We're so happy. Blessings. So, but it's the idea is it dangles these hoops for people to jump through to get their prosperity while it fleeces their congregation to enrich the few. The new perspective on Paul and the federal vision redefined what Paul means about justification and to varying degrees what requirements are, are necessary in order to be justified in God's sight, particularly through obedience. But for Paul and the church, we can debate side issues and interpretive finer points, but you don't mess with the gospel. The Galatians didn't, uh, but, uh, but um, the Galatians themselves did not introduce these corrections, but they have received them, and they are living by them. And Paul says, and they are, they are, what they are doing is tantamount to abandoning Christ himself. But Paul is not the only one who has a problem, because the Galatians have a problem with Paul, specifically regarding his apostleship. And we see this in, uh, in, in verse 11 of chapter 1, and it goes all the way through chapter 2 and verse 14, where Paul does an extensive defense of his apostleship. Paul gives a robust summary in there of his calling into faith, 
his calling as an apostle of Christ, how he was approved by the church and the other apostles in ministry. But at the end, he also makes clear that he is called by God because he talks about this moment where he actually stood up to Peter and chastised him and rebuked him to his face. Now, if he's beholden to men, he certainly wouldn't have done that to one of the chief apostles. But why was Paul so concerned to to defend his apostleship? You know, there are some people that are very sensitive about their titles, right? You will call me doctor so-and-so. I didn't go to school for blah, blah, blah. You used to be called doctor, whatever, you know. Um, or, or to be called Mr. or Miss or whatever. <laughs> and then, uh, or, or they get real sensitive, you know. They get, they get a new promotion. They're like, nope, you will call me by that. My title, you know, very sensitive about it. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not like, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? No, Paul is concerned about it because his apostleship is a gospel issue. It's a gospel proclamation issue. Because Paul is not a petty or proud man. He doesn't care about titles. He doesn't care about whether people are saying bad things about him personally. He says in the book of Philippians, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. He's like, but it's all garbage and rubbish that I may know Christ. Right? It's like, he says, he's like, I would rather die than be here with y'all, but it's more necessary that I be with y'all, so 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 I know I'm going to be here with you. So you're like, you're such a good friend, Paul. You're such a good friend. Feel good having you with me. But he commits everything to the glory of Christ. If he's beaten or to be shamed for the cause of Christ, then so be it. That Christ increase and him decrease. But his apostleship is genuine. It must be defended because it is tied to the proclamation of the gospel in the apostolic era. If Paul is just a man approved by some men in Jerusalem, then his gospel is only from men and can be supplanted by other gospels from other men. And some might try this kind of line of argument against pastors today and say, well, you know, Eric, you're, you're approved for ordination by a bunch, of, a bunch of men who just met, you know, and, and, and we don't even like them so much and some of them aren't that great. And, and they met and they, and they said, you can go be a pastor. And, and then a bunch, of, a bunch of people in your church, they just said, well, we want you to be your pastor. And so, so who are you? Who do you think you are? And I would say, absolutely, I mean, I, I'm nobody. But, but apostleship is different than minister ordinations. Uh, to be an apostle, you had to be called by the risen Christ himself amongst, uh, amongst a host of other qualifications. Actually, Paul highlights that he is the odd duck when it comes to the apostles. He's the odd man out. He is the one, as uh, he describes as one untimely born. Why? Because he, was not, he did not personally travel and live with Christ in his earthly ministry as the other apostles did. He's the unusual one. He's the 13th apostle. I think we forget that. Why? Because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Right? He's the apostle that's going to the other part of the church as the gospel spreads out and includes the Gentiles into the people of God. But Paul is a genuine apostle who has been sent from God. And his message is not from men. It is from God also. I mentioned Dr. Waters earlier when we were a Presbyterian and he was, uh, and they were talking about ordination. He, you know, he said, it, he, and he told us, he, he, said, he said, you know, I, I, I hate to, um, oh no, this was in my poly class that I had with him. But he said, he, he said you know, I, I'm sorry to break it to you guys, but uh, when the elders come, they lay hands on you and they pray for you, you don't get magical powers. 
All right, they, you're not going to get an extra double helping of the spirit or any of that. That's, that's not what's going to happen, <laughs> right? Because that's not you're not an apostle. <laughs> like it's not something special about that, except that through the authority of Christ, you're being set apart for a specific task um, uh, for for the good of the church. That is significant. That does matter. That is important. But it's not the same as as being called as an apostle as Paul is. And, and today there are still plenty of people who would seek to remove Paul and any authority that he might have because they simply don't like what Paul teaches. But to do so, they eradicate not only the things that, that they don't like about Paul, but they end up actually eradicating uh, the, the message of salvation itself. And so all of this first section uh, of the book of Galatians, uh, from verse 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 14, highlight the problems that are going on in the Galatian church. The problem of abandoning the gospel for a different one. The problem of, of, of questioning Paul's apostleship. And it all highlights it with the, the, the importance of the body of the letter, which is, in, uh, which is in chapter 2, verse 15, through the end of chapter 4, verse, uh, through verse 31, which is that we must get the gospel right. That's what the book of Galatians is about. We have to get the gospel right. And, and, we have to, and to get the gospel right, we have to uh, focus on two things in, uh, in this section that Paul gives us. And the first one is it's going to be not a surprise. It's going to be very straightforward. And, and hopefully it's very familiar to you. And it, it is this. We are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Dr. Waters calls this Paul's central thesis of the letter that he articulates, defends, illustrates, and applies to the church. And there are two points here for us to consider. First is how Paul says that even though he is a Jew by birth, he knows that, quote, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also believe in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here is the clearest statement of justification by faith alone. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. We are not justified by our obedience to Jewish laws. We're not justified by our obedience to our own laws that we invent and make up either ourselves personally or uh, collectively as, as a church or society. A person is pardoned of their sins and declared righteous in the sight of God. That's what justified means. But they are done so by faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who lived a righteous life for us. This is the clear and true gospel that we must hold to and protect from any deviation from it and any error in it. This is what we must zealously guard at all times. Now, as Presbyterians, we like to be very precise. We like definitions. We like order. I was, I was still laughing the other day. I was, about, I was meeting with two, uh, two Baptist pastors, and uh, one of them was introducing me to another one, and, then, and I sat there, and I was like, okay, so why are we meeting? What is the purpose of this meeting? You know, and they was like, I just thought you'd want to meet him. And I was like, he was, and he was just like, you were such a Presbyterian. 
He was like, you have to have a docket. Like, do we have to have, like, a, like a whole thing laid out? We're just here to meet each other. <laughs> like, and just, I'm like, okay, okay, fine. I can chill. I can chill. All right? So. But, but even within Presbyterian circles, there are, there are plenty of room to debate about a lot of issues. And I really don't actually get ruffled about all the crazy that's out there. And we're in 2024, and we're in an election year, and there's a lot of crazy out there already. There's going to be a lot more crazy before the year is done. I don't get that ruffled about all the false teaching that's out there in the world. I don't like it. I'll tell you what I think about it. I'll give my evaluations of it. I'll do all that. I've got plenty to say about it. But I don't get super worked up about it. Well, what else would we expect in a fallen world except for fallen people to do fallen things? But if you want to see me get real serious, real fast, then watch someone try to spread a false gospel in our church. Like in our church. This is, and this is because, you know, we, we may, whatever else we may debate about, argue about, disagree about, the gospel is not one of those things. This, of course, doesn't mean that people can't ask questions, that they can't uh, play devil's advocate as well. Some people go, ugh, who'd want to be the advocate for the devil? It's not what they're saying. Not like, the devil's great. You know, the whole idea is you do the opposite side of the argument, so that way it sharpens the positive side, the side of the angels. Right, so it's actually so it's actually a useful uh, rhetorical uh, device to use. Um, but but that's helpful. It's okay also for people to misunderstand. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people coming in and specifically knowingly teaching things that are false, particularly things about the gospel that are false. If someone is doing that knowingly, or even if they're doing it unknowingly, and they need to be corrected. It is the responsibility of the elders of the church to put a stop to it fast. Now, if there's just, if there's just an error, I mean, it's gentleness. Gentleness, you know, admonition, correction, things. But if someone is knowingly doing this, saying, oh, I know it's not what you believe. I know it's not what Presbyterians believe. I know it's not what you, and you're wrong, you know. Uh, well, then, then we're going to have an issue, right? I don't have a problem with the guy who sends me letters to the church uh, of claiming to be an apostle and that I need to pay him money to come tell me why I'm wrong so he can save my soul. You know, I get those usually once a year. Um, but if he actually came to my church and tried to get in and get up on the pulpit, that's a different story, right? He can send me all the letters he wants. You know? but, but if he actually tries to get into the pulpit, that's another story. So, and so we need to guard and zealously guard the gospel. But uh, because it's a salvation issue, and if we don't, if we get, start getting salvation wrong, if we start getting it mixed up, well, that's going to mess up God's church, his people. And so we have to be careful. Um, secondly, uh, and this is, uh, picks up in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 31, is so just as we are justified by faith alone, Paul really stresses that we receive the Spirit by faith alone. We receive the Spirit by faith alone and not by works of the law. We receive the Holy Spirit by faith, not works, which is demonstrated um, in redemptive history and the covenants, is demonstrated in the weakness of the law to justify us, uh, demonstrated in the promises of God and the covenants and the nature of our adoption into the family of God. And Paul really articulates this wondrous truth of, ju- of justification by faith alone um, by, uh, uh, by appealing uh, by appealing to uh, to the things which uh, the false teachers have were apparently 
uh, appealing to. He goes to the Old Testament. But he does so in the context of talking about how do we receive the Spirit. And so when I say that we receive, we are justified by faith alone and receive the Spirit by faith alone, not talking about them as two separate things. There are two things that occur at the same time. All right, so because we are justified by faith alone by the ministry of the Spirit. And when we are justified, we receive the Spirit. So, uh, and so, it's, and so the, it is the work of the Spirit doing so as he indwells believers. And so Paul uh, talks extensively about Abraham because the covenant God made with Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He even says that when God gave the promises of the covenant to Abraham that he was preaching the gospel to him back in, all the way back in Genesis 12. The law, he says, came in as a guardian of the promises uh, until the Messiah came forth who would die and rise again. And so now um, often overlooked at this point, though, is where how, how this whole section begins. It begins in chapter 3 where he's talking about all these things about the covenant and how those who are of faith are the true descendants of Abraham. They are the true Israel and the, and the true church of God and all these things. But then they forget that this whole conversation, or this whole point started with, uh, with uh, Paul talking about how we receive the spirit by faith, not by works. And, uh, and, and so apparently like justification that this, it was thought that, you, that by obedience to the law, you would receive the Holy Spirit, or by obedience to the law, you demonstrated the Spirit's presence in your life. But Paul strongly presses home the, home the point that just like the Holy Spirit uh, it does, works in us in, through justification, the Holy Spirit comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to live inside you because you did good things, because you obey God. He does come when we believe because he lives inside us, applying the benefits of the gospel, which include justifying us before God and affecting our adoption into the family of God. If we do, and, so the, and the issue here is so important because if we do not guard the gospel, if we do not guard the justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ, then the church will die. Not the ultimate church. The, the, there, there will always be a church on earth. But I'm talking about our church. Bailey Presbyterian Church will die if we lose the gospel. Our presbytery, our denomination will die if it loses sight of the gospel. Because if we lose the gospel, then we lose our only true hope of salvation but we also lose any reason to do anything we're doing today. Why would we gather here? Why would we do what we're doing? Why would we sacrifice anything? Well, because the gospel is real. The gospel is true. And we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul tells us that we need to live in light of the gospel. In chapter 5, verse 1, through the end of chapter 6, and the end of the letter we have here what we can call a section of gospel exhortations. That is, the, that is the, the appropriate response to the gospel in the life of the church. And, and there's two things we're going to focus on. And one comes in chapter 5. The other one comes in chapter 6, hopefully. And the first is in chapter 5, in, in verses 1 through 26, um, is that 
in, Paul tells us that in, in our Christian freedom, we must walk by the Spirit. In our Christian freedom, we must walk by the Spirit. Christian freedom, he says, produces righteousness and holiness in the lives of the Christians, not sin. We are free in Christ, but we are not freed up to sin. And when, when, when Christ sets us free, he's not like those, uh, was it those 90s pet movies where they would go and take the, you know, take the animal to the forest and go like, and the kid would be like, go, you know, and send them off into the forest to be free. Like, that's not what Jesus does with us. He doesn't just set us off into the woods to go make a life for ourselves. What does he do? He brings us to the palace, adopts us into the family. And in fact, says, no, now your name has changed. You, it's not that you don't have standards to live by now. Now the standards you have to live by, they're even bigger and better because now you're part of the family of God. Paul says that we have a responsibility, expectation, obligation that is attached to our Christian freedom. But how is that freedom? The libertarian in Texas asks. Well, yes, it's not absolute autonomous freedom. But we've never had that. As, As creatures, we've never had that kind of freedom. No one does. Uh, even even in even in you know American history, we talk about freedom and liberty. We talk about an ordered liberty, a structured liberty, that's boundaries and directions and expectations and character requirements. How much more so for Christian freedom and Christian liberty? We were never free in some kind of autonomous way. We are creatures with limits, boundaries, and restraints. And further, before coming to faith, we weren't just out on our own. We were, we were children of Satan under his authority and rule. He's the power of the prince of the air. But now we are gods and we are expected to live as such. He also says that in our freedom, as we live by the spirit, we are known by our fruit or by the fruit of the spirit. The Holy Spirit produces in us what we have come to call the fruits of the Spirit. Always a handy memory verse to rattle off those, right? So, uh, and, and I do hope when we come to that to do an extended kind of deep dive into the, into the fruits of the Spirit. But for now, we need to understand how, uh, and see how Paul contrasts the fruits of the Spirit in that section against the works of the flesh. That's the contrast that he puts. He said the works of the flesh are these... He's like, but the fruits of the Spirit are these. And against these, there is no law. Against these, there is nothing saying, don't do this. In fact, it's everything saying, do these things. And here, Paul seems to be applying Jesus' illustration that good trees bear good fruit, but only trees that have the Spirit. And how do we get the Spirit? By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. But Spirit-filled trees bear spiritual fruit. That is, the, that is the assumption here. And we need to be clear here, though, because Paul is presenting a list of works of the flesh in order that Christians in the church would recognize them and avoid them. Mark and avoid these things. Even if the country, the city around you, even the pagan areas around you say, these things are actually pretty great. Don't knock it till you try it. You need to mark and avoid these things. 
then he's also presenting a list of, uh, a, of fruits of the Spirit that we would recognize those in others and cultivate them in our lives and in the lives of those around us. What Paul is not doing is presenting a list of behaviors over here, and so if you do one of the bad ones, you're out. And if you do one, the ones that are good over here and just hide all the bad ones from everyone else, then you're good and you're in. Although people live like that and they pretend like that. And sometimes church cultures can, can present that idea before people. So just, just at least pretend you're doing these, okay? okay? And we'll just all pretend that we're not. And if you are doing them, don't talk about them and don't tell us. And if you do do them, just don't come back, right? We're not going to help you repent or be restored. What he is doing here is teaching us that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are to remove bad fruit and to produce good fruit, but only by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. It's the only way you can do it. And it's not by simple, just white-knuckled, bootstrap-pulling good works that I'm going to be good now. This is all done, all done by faith in Jesus. The obedience, Paul says, that proceeds from faith, as it says in Romans. Finally, he says in this section, chapter 6, that we are to care for one another in the church while boasting only in the cross. The life of the church is not a solo act. None of us can do it without the other. We need each other because life is difficult, because we fail against the flesh, because we are weak and we are weary. And so Paul encourages the church, commands the church to bear one another's burdens, to come alongside and to, and to take the weight up and to help when our brothers and sisters are laid low. He says, restore the repentant gently. The ones who are doing stuff on the bad list. Did you know Christians can sin? And they can sin really bad? They can do the big ones. The ones we're not allowed to talk about. They can do those. Right? What do we do with them? Well, the repentant, repentant ones, he says, to restore them. They restore them. He says, test yourselves. Walk in humility towards one another. Don't think you're something special because you ain't. Right? Remember, he says, principle. We reap what we sow. He says, therefore, do not grow weary in doing good. Because it may, not, it may look like I'm not reaping. I'm just sowing and sowing and sowing. It feels like somebody else is reaping, and I'm just sowing. He says, no, no, no. You will sow a harvest. It will come. Even if it's in glory, it will come. Do not grow weary in doing good, especially in the church, with your brothers and sisters in the household of God. Finally, he exhorts us that there is no room for boasting in any of our works. We boast only in the cross. Not our records, not our attendance, not anything, how, how much we gave of our money, our time, our, 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 our talents. We don't boast in any of that. 
we boast only in the Son of God who died for us. We follow Paul's example. We don't need works or circumcision to justify us. What we need is to be made into new creations. And this only happens through Jesus. And so in Galatians, Paul presents to us a picture of the cruciform or the cross-shaped life. One text uh, said uh, that no letter makes clearer than this, than this one, the importance of living out all the implications of salvation through the cross. We have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have received the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. And by virtue of His mercy, we are now children of promise, inheritors of the kingdom of God, of the promises that were given to Abraham. We are ourselves children of the living God. And all of this comes not by our obedience to the law of the old covenant or any other law made by man. It comes only by faith in Jesus. And in Him we rejoice and we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in Christ we do have that hope. That, we, uh, that our justification that our being made right in your sight is not dependent upon us and our labors and our works. And we thank you, Lord, for there is these, just these temptations that tell us, that constantly scream at us that we're not good enough, we'll never be good enough, or even the lie that there are no standards, that there is no such thing as sin. But Lord, we know that you are the holy God who punishes sin, but who also gives grace to all those who trust in Jesus Christ to save him. And so, Lord, we rejoice that our salvation is true and full in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, that we would follow him, that we indeed would, lead, that we would not abandon the gospel, but we would hold on to it that we would endure suffering and affliction with it and by it. And Father, that by your Spirit's help and grace, Lord, we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we would care for one another in the church, and that you be glorified in our midst. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now and respond to God's word by singing together our final hymn tonight, hymn 303, Blessed Assurance.